Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Lancashire Live and the Hull Daily Mail. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. Later in the podcast, we'll be hearing from the Conservative MP, James Grundy, who'll be telling us why he wants to separate his constituency of Lee in Greater Manchester from the Labour-run borough of Wigan and go its own way. There will be other places as well in the country who wish to see um, devolution brought down to the very local level. So we can basically direct the future path of our town in the most effective way. Because who, who are the best people to make the decision for the local community but those local communities? But before that, why don't we talk a bit about the way we talk? The roots of regional dialects in different parts of the country go back for centuries. And these days in the north of England, local and regional identity are formed to a large extent by accents. They're a source of pride for many, part of what makes our region the vibrant and interesting place that it is. But analysis by a team of academics at Northumbria University suggests that there are many in this country for whom a northern accent and this is pretty astonishing really, it's actually a sign of being less intelligent, less educated and less ambitious. One of the findings from the British Academy funded Speaking of Prejudice research project is that people form judgments about others purely based on the way they speak. I'd like to drill down into this. So we've got Dr. Robert McKenzie, one of the academics who carried out the study to find out a bit more about it. Robert, it's nice to have you on. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure to speak as, as, a, as a Northern-based academic. I'm very pleased to come on to your programme. Not, not at all. And given that I'm not actually Northern and don't speak with a Northern accent, despite my best efforts to flatten my vowels when I moved up to Leeds a decade ago, let's also bring in our producer, Dan McLaughlin, a bona fide Lancastrian who doesn't just have a Northern accent, but uses it to perform poetry at venues around Manchester and North West. Hi, Dan. I, yeah, I'm not going to put on an accent. Unfortunately, I'm stuck with this. I've tried to get rid of it, but for the best of my ability, but this is what you've got. And there's no reason you should change it. Uh, no, reason, no reason at all. So, Robert, can you first tell us a bit more about uh, the study and why you decided to embark on it? Okay, the project's, the project's called Speaking of Prejudice, and it's something we've been doing for four years, and we got funding from the British Academy to do this project. Basically, to give you a bit of background, the way that people speak is a, is an it indexes um, other people's stereotypes of of them. So, for example, we might say that German, for example, sounds harsh, perhaps if we're talking negatively, and but strong. But French, on the other hand, sounds, let's say, sophisticated and romantic. Well, what we're really doing is that's accessing our stereotypes of French and French and German people. And you know, to take it back to the UK, there's there's a lot of studies. In, in England in particular, showing us that we have we stereotype the nor- northern speakers. And you know, there's as I, I'm I'm very aware that there's a great variation within the north of England. I, I live in Newcastle and I'm I'm hearing a Manchester, a Northwest accent here, which is very different between the north and the south of England. And those stereotypes, if you like, those those attitudes, if you like, they, they access ideas of the wider north and the wider south. So Basically, by looking at language attitudes and looking at evaluations of linguistic varieties, we can 
hear something or we can learn something about what people think about their, pre their prejudices and their stereotypes, which they might not be able to, to access or at least, at least express in other ways. People's views about an accent is not necessarily a reflection on the implicit qualities of the accent. It, it, it's to some extent a reflection of the prejudices that people already have about the people from from that area. That's exactly. I mean, you've hit, you've hit the nail of the head there. So you know, as linguists, we know that all varieties, all all dialects, if you like, although we tend to use the word varieties, are they're all systematic. None are more complex than others. They all have their their, their complex rules. But you know, it's still possible to say, for example. Um, in America, there's, there's research in America that says, for example, many people think that African-American English is educated, is uneducated and lazy, but they would never say that African-American people are lazy and uneducated, or at least it's not, it's not socially acceptable to say that. But if it's socially acceptable to say these things about accents, then that means that means that we're just we're just expressing our prejudices in another way. So it's really a uh, a way of a way for people to disguise their snobbery about certain parts of the country. They can't say that they think that Northerners are less educated, but they can say that their accent <laughs> makes them sound less educated, which I guess is a slightly more polite way of, of saying the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I would even go so far as to say it's not it's not a polite way because it's a way, it's a way of taking away their voice. So if you look, for example, um, at some politicians, for example, Angela Rayner and Jess Phillips, well, you know, they've been criticised from the for the way they speak by you know several newspapers and on Twitter, and it's kind of a way of diminishing their their message. So, for example, if 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 um, you know, the message if the accent or the variety is stigmatised, then they can take away their voice. They can say that the message that they have is also is also stigmatised and diminished. So, you know, it, and we know that these. These attitudes, these language attitudes, have social implications. So, for example, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll go in a bit wider again. Um, that in court, for example, if you have a stigmatised accent, you're more likely to be found guilty of a crime, and particularly violent or petty crime, than someone with a so-called standard accent. You are more likely to be um, given lower marks by your teacher in a school, if your, your, your school teacher thinks that you speak a denigrated accent, um, you're less likely to be given a job than a so-called standard speaker after an interview. And just generally, you're less likely to be believed. Your message is less likely to believe. So, you know, it, it's kind of easy to come across as saying you're being po-faced and, and, you know, I've invented another ism, but it does have social implications for, for speakers. So it's, I guess with that being the case, you can understand why people might, as they move through the world, sort of soften the, the accent that they have if they've experienced what you've described, you know, early early in their lives, and they want to, that they feel like they want to make a success of themselves. They might speak differently to, you know, in, enhance their chances of, of success. I mean, soft softens a really interesting word that you use. So, for example strong and, and less strong accents they're only they're only based on some idea that people speak neutrally and of course people who say that they speak neutrally they are they're the powerful ones we speak normally and everyone else speaks funny so these ideas of standard accents and non-standard accents they really just re represent social judgments of the speakers and to say that people you know if everybody if everybody should speak the same or everybody should have so-called soft accents it's kind of like a hundred years ago, it's kind of like saying, or even, you know, earlier or, 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 you know, more recent, 
women women should just man up a bit and you know um if the minority should whiten up a bit and then there'd be no prejudice i mean it's ex- it's exactly the same argument really so people base people base their prejudices on ideas of you know intelligibility for example there's no reason why for example a manchester accent is not more intelligible than a southern british standard english accent which we used to call a rp but there's no reason for that at all it's just exposure I mean, there's, there's only two arguments there, you know, for example, it could be that people are less exposed to the accent, so they, they have more difficulty understanding it. Or, on the other hand, it could be that Manchester accent is so complex for those other speakers that they can't understand it. And that's the only two possibilities. And of course, it's the first one. Yeah, well, it has to be really, doesn't it? Now, I was interested to see that people's attitudes to accents and, you know, the extent to which the phenomenon you describe is the case, it depends on age what what's it what's what's the situation there yeah i mean maybe maybe i can give a quick overview of the the results what we found we looked at northern and english speech and we didn't we didn't choose so we didn't choose lots of vernacular we didn't choose lots of dialects what we, do, we did was we chose very educated speakers so we chose what we might call a, ger- a general northern english accent which is some some accent from the north or a variety from the north which is spreading all, all over the north and it's the kind of thing that you might hear on northern media for example, you might hear on Northern TV, you might hear in Northern courts, or you might hear in Northern universities. So we chose that as the Northern, what we call stimulus. And in the Southern, the Southern stimulus, we chose a, a Southern Standard English, a British English speaker. So, you know, considered educated accents, if you like. And what we did was we, we, asked, we played those speech samples and we said, what do you think? What do you think of these speakers? And that's self, self, what we call self-reported attitude. So we just asked their opinion. And what we found in line with what we found 50 years for the last 50 years is that in terms of status, the Southern English, so status means traits like intelligence, education, ambition. We found that you know English nationals, 350 of them from all over England tended to rate the Southern speaker higher on intelligence and status. But on the other hand, they rated this, the northern speaker, the northern, the general northern English speaker, higher in terms of friendliness and trustworthiness, honesty, pleasantness, etc. So we call that social attractiveness. So there's these two dimensions: social attractiveness and status, and they and they kind of compensate for each other. So we might say, for example, um, speakers in the in Newcastle sound friendly, but they can be often or sometimes diminished in terms of perceptions of you know richness or poverty or yeah. Okay, and then. What we also did, and this is, you know, perhaps a bit more novel, we we looked at their implicit attitudes. We measured underneath the, the ideas which they may not be aware of, you know, their perceptions that we, we they may not be aware of. And we, we, we used something called an implicit association test. And that's where a computer-based test where we measure their, their reaction times to associate different accents with different um, adjectives and their quickness to do that. And the idea is the quicker you can associate a speech sample with um, positive traits or positive adjectives, the quicker you are. And we found at more implicit levels or more deeply embedded levels, if you like, that um, the Southern English speech was much more positively evaluated in both terms of status and social attractiveness. So underneath underneath these, you know, compensatory attitudes, there was much more much more negativity towards the North. And that was that was rather surprising for us because, you know, it kind of harks back to maybe 50 years ago. And you may, <laughs> just to finish, <laughs> there, there's, um, in terms of age, we found the age differences that younger people, although they weren't 
overwhelmingly positive towards the North. They were more tolerant, if you like, towards Northern English accents than, than their older peers, which kind of suggests that there might be some attitude change in progress towards a greater tolerance towards the North. And that's, that's a good sign. So that we think these attitudes are changing, but very slowly. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now, um, Dan, let's bring you in at this point. I could see you uh, nodding, nodding vigorously during uh, when, while Robert was talking there. Now, you you work in the media, obviously, and you perform in venues in Northern England. I mean, does does what Robert say, what what he's saying there, does that ring true for you? Have you have you experienced this sort of bias uh, against Northern accents that uh, Robert is describing there? Yeah, absolutely. Everything that you're saying, like, like you said, Rob, I, I was nodding along vigorously at some points. In my job in the media, I would tend to use what Dr. McKenzie was saying was the status. I, 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 I did status, whereas in my um, life as a performer, I did the social attractiveness. So in my uh, professional life, I feel like my accent can be a hindrance. So not necessarily my accent, but people's attitudes towards my accent would be the hindrance. Um, it's an old, it's an old school Blackburn accent. What I've got, and but when I'm on stage as a performer, that friendliness, that trustworthiness, that humour. I think the um, the, the Lancashire accent is associated with humour. I, I was told when I did my journalism training that I'll never read news at ten, and there are some regional accents that could work with that. So there are certain Scottish accents, Welsh accents, Irish accents that are great for broadcast journalism, but they're told something like a Lancashire accent. You could you could do a comedy programme, but you couldn't necessarily do a news programme. And I think that was a cultural thing in terms of you see Peter Kay, Paddy McGuinness, that sort of thing. Those Northern voices are in the comedy. But um, in, in terms of the status accent, it, uh, mine doesn't seem to be complicit with the expectations of what they want. That's really interesting. I mean, it's uh, interesting about different accents being perhaps seen by some as more appropriate to different types of media. And, uh, you know, the, the the BBC's latest political editor is a guy called Chris Mason, who has quite a uh, a strong Yorkshire accent. And, uh, but yeah, generally speaking, uh, you know, the people that you see reading the news are, uh, have, are more likely to have what you'd describe as sort of an RP kind of a kind kind of accent. Robert, I, I gather that a long term aim of your project is for accent to be designated as a protected characteristic under equality legislation. What what's the thinking behind that and how would you go about doing that? I mean yeah, I mean that that's that's a great question. That's exactly what we're we're thinking of doing. So for example, if if gender, for example, and disability is a protected characteristic, then and we're not we're not allowed we're not allowed to be or we can we can we have um we can we can legislate against that if you feel you don't get your job because of a because of your gender then you know maybe maybe you should have a right to claim for your accent and your accent too and um if it's if accent is a protected characteristic the way to do this would be to find an mp for example to put a document into the the house of commons library and then we would have a debate on accent discrimination, and and then you know it could be included in the the equality law. So it's it's a long term aim. I mean, part of the aim as well is to increase people's understanding of of you know the the implications of accents of of accent bias, if you like, or negative attitudes towards negative accent. Because you know we've just we just had a lovely description there of you know the life chances of of someone from Manchester. 
yeah, or someone from the Northwest. I mean, you know, we make those choices. You 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 can't read the news at ten. You're you're from the Northwest. I mean, that, to me, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. If we said you can't read the read read the news at ten, for example, or the BBC News because you're a female or because you're an ethnic minority, there'd be uproar. But we can, you know, we can we can say these things about accents. I, I, I have to say that the idea of a, a, as a protected characteristic, I think, would be vitally important because my accent is not only a gateway into my geography, it's a gateway into my culture, my history, obviously my, my, my parental lineage, but also the, the rich history of where I'm from, where it's been and where it's going. Yeah. Um, and if we can protect buildings, uh, in, we should be looking to protect the accent because that's the gateway to, to that history. Yeah, I mean, if you if you soften your accent or you know have, take an accent reduction course, I mean, basically you're 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 damaging part of your identity and the identity of those around you. Absolutely. I mean, you know, so, you know, some people some people do try and soften their accent. Some people do do take accent reduction courses, you know, because of course it, it might um, be helpful for them on a personal basis, but on a community level, those pro- problems still exist. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, um, I guess part of what goes into the question of what is a northern accent uh, to get to that you have to decide what what is the north of england uh, first of all which is a heated debate uh, before we went on air i was describing what i thought the uh, the constituted the boundary of the north of england but you, this was another thing that you were looking at as well robert and you got quite a few different responses didn't you yeah i mean as well as as well as um looking at age differences and gender differences we also look in, in, in attitudes we also looked at differences between whether the, the the participants, the listeners, people who took part in the study, they thought they were from the north and from the south. And one interesting thing we did find, you know, even people from the Midlands, we asked, we asked them, are you, do you affiliate with the north, the south or other? And most, most people, even from the Midlands, would say they affiliated with the north. And the further down you came from the country, like right down to the Midlands, the more, the further the, 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 the geography, the boundary seemed to be with the north. So, you know, my students, for example, in Newcastle, they think the north ends somewhere south of Middlesbrough or just maybe somewhere north of Middlesbrough. But, you know, for example, if I said that Sheffield was in the north, they, they, they would disagree with me. And of course, you know, people from Sheffield would never say they're from the Midlands or the South. So all the way down to Derbyshire and Lincolnshire, people were saying, oh, I affiliate with the north, which kinds of, you know, in, in terms of linguistics, kind of shows that perhaps those accents are in the West Midlands and the East Midlands are also, they trigger stereotypes about in the same way of high, high social attractiveness and low status indeed. You know, for 50 years, we've found in, in kind of more explicit self-reported research that Birmingham itself seems to be the bet noir of, of English accents. You know, it's, it's in some way considered a little bit more rootless by some people and um, and the others because it's not, you know, it's not part of the wider northern identity. But in other ways, it doesn't have the, the status as well. But hopefully, you know, programs like Peaky Blinders might, might have be having a positive effect on that. And another thing we also found is is that when we actually talk to people, they be, were becoming increasingly positive towards the Manchester accent. And that might be because, in, you know, I've been a few times to Manchester over the 30, 30 years. Every time I go back to, the, to Manchester, it seems more economically prosperous and powerful. And, and you can tell that by the, just from the height of the buildings. And, you know, perhaps because ac- st- status evaluations reflect accent um, evaluations of power, 
then perhaps the Manchester um, Manchester accent itself will will be will be increasingly thought of as, as more favourable. And indeed, we know from um, general Northern English, this general Northern English variety, which seems to be spreading throughout the north more and more and more, that has many features of Manchester English. It's funny you say that. It's exactly what I hear from back home. Is a lot of the younger people are picking up a Manchester accent, or as you said, it's general Northern accent, and maybe it is that reclamation of power. I just wanted to add as well that you get a lot of people who say that they're proudly Northern, but it's very rare to hear someone say I'm proud, proudly Southern. Just sort of, we all like an outsider. We all like the difference as well. I mean, I, I kind of look at it in terms of, so for example, if, if you know, being Scottish, I, I hear quite often in the media, you know, that English, Englishness and, and Britishness is conflated. And this is quite, this is quite confusing as a Scottish person. But I kind of hear of, often, being in England, that the southernness represents Englishness. So, if it's southern, you know, the very idea of the home counties being home, isn't it? And the north, the north being other. So, I mean, central to the idea of, and I don't want to lecture, <laughs> lecture you on Englishness, but central to the idea of Englishness seems to be the north-south divide, and and the north is other, as other something different, yeah, and something outside. And you know, I think that's quite interest. It's quite an interesting concept. So as Britishness perhaps recedes and Englishness is on Englishness, the idea of Englishness is on the rise. Then I think this Northern English, Northern Southern English um, binary distinction is is evolving. Quite often I'm asked about what are the issues that bind Northerners together. Like what are the common things that all Northerners feel? And obviously that's quite a hard question to ask answer because the North is such a diverse and vibrant place. But I think it is probably the case that one of the things that defines northernness is that simple binary distinction of not being not being London, not being in London, being that physical distance and that metaphorical uh, distance away away from London. And that is how part of how maybe some, if not necessarily all northerners define themselves and you see that in the way that some politicians some northern politicians uh, use that distinction kind of thinking of Andy Burnham maybe and, and, and others to bolster their political their political brand but that's a I guess a wider question that goes beyond just uh, accents and more into uh, you know economic prosperity and and things like that and um, Robert we, I could talk about this all day. It's such a fascinating subject, but it's been great talking to you. So the, the study is called Speaking of Prejudice, and it's funded by the British Academy. And is there a, an academic paper out that you can, uh, that you can, you can point people in the direction of? Well, that's, that's very kind of it. In the next couple of weeks, we've got a book coming out and, and the results. And I also, we discussed the idea of neuralness and the results of the study. It's called Implicit and Explicit Language Attitudes, Mapping Linguistic Prejudice and Attitude Change in England by myself and Andrew McNeil. And it's out with Routledge. Fantastic stuff. Dr. Robert McKenzie, thank you so much. Thank you so much, too. It was a pleasure. So Northern Conservatives gathered in Doncaster last week for a big conference to exchange ideas that they hope might give voters in our region a reason to repeat the backing they gave to Boris Johnson in 2019. The Prime Minister wasn't there himself though, he was called away for a meeting in the Ukraine and there were those in the party starting to worry that his flagship domestic agenda 
of levelling up is starting to gradually work its way down his to-do list as he wrestles with a cost of living crisis gripping the country and other big issues. So let's hear from one of the Northern Conservatives who formed part of Mr Johnson's spectacular election success in the so-called Red Wall, the Lee MP James Grundy. James is the first ever Conservative to represent the constituency and will, at the next election, I'm sure, be wanting to show voters in his part of Greater Manchester that they were right to change their allegiance. So, James, welcome to our podcast. Hello. Good to see you today, Rob. It's good to have you on. So, um, let's start with levelling up, shall we? Now, obviously, as I was alluding to, there have been some pretty major headwinds the government's been facing the pandemic, the cost of living crisis. In your constituency, would you say that levelling up is happening? And if it's not happening, why, why, why isn't it happening in your view? Um, I, I would say already um, that there are some projects being put in place and, and some things that have been stopped, actually, which, uh, which I think uh, demonstrate that levelling up is still at the heart of the government's agenda. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the main things is uh, for decades, uh, people were talking about the need to reopen Golden Railway Station and uh, the government uh, basically provided 14 million from uh, the, uh, if I remember correctly, the Transforming Cities Fund to get Golden Station reopened. Now, that's something that, that you know, Andy Burnham was in, uh, was in Tony Blair's government as a cabinet member. Um, it, it didn't happen, um, you know, within a couple of years of getting a Conservative MP. We've got that money, um, and so the people of Goulburn, after after since the 1960s, uh, when their local station was shut, we're getting it back. And in many ways, um, that's a test bed for getting back a station for Lee, which of course famously doesn't have a railway station. It's one of the largest towns in the country not to. Um, and obviously, there are there are projects along uh, those lines which we're looking at all across the country. I know Grant Shapps has been talking about the uh, Restoring Your Railways projects uh, recently. That's the kind of stuff that people want to see in terms of levelling up. It's, it's uh, bricks and mortar projects uh, that deliver for local communities that clearly have needs uh, for, for projects of that type and feel that over however many decades um, that, that they've been wanting them, they just haven't been delivered for one reason or another. There's this pot of money, isn't there? 4.8 billion, the levelling up fund devoted to regeneration projects in uh, places across the country. But uh, now I know Wigan Council, which is Labour run, put forward a bid for a project last year, I think, or the year before that involved a multi-storey car park. But you didn't support that and it didn't it never got any funding from the government as far as i'm aware now i'm sure you'd like lee to benefit from this five billion uh, pound fund but if local leaders are going to bid for more of this cash what which is i think happening in the next few weeks with the second round of the fund i mean what what kind of things would you like wigan and lee should be bidding for on behalf of people in your in your town not not a multi-story car park i assume there are a couple of things First of all, uh, Lee Market is uh, reaching the end of its uh, its sort of its current life. It's looking very tired and down at heel. That's something we would want to see regenerated. Alla, Altrincham Market, or indeed Warrington Market. Um, th- those are some very good nearby examples of of, of how um, this refurbishment of a local market in the heart of a town can uh, can bring um, leveling up in practice to town. So, as I say, there have been a, a, some very impressive uh, examples of this in Tilsley, in, in the east of my constituency, and we're looking at doing something similar in Lee Town Centre, where we're um, basically bringing the high street back to life. Um, with uh, with sort of new 
uh, um, uh, shop fronts, uh, sort of guided by a design and style guide um, to keep it coherent and in all, all the shop fronts in keeping with each other, so that people can have a high street uh, that is uh, that, that brings a sense of pride again, rather than looking like a, sort of a row of broken teeth. Um, uh, that that is uh, that is another one of the projects, and of course, um, I think there's uh, there's also been some proposals around uh, um, sort of refurbishment of the town square outside the library and town hall, which I think is also impressive. Um, I think the um, uh, we're, we're obviously quite close to submitting a bid at the moment, and uh, and uh, quite a lot of the suggestions that I and Lee Means Business brought forward have been incorporated into the bid, um, but we do have some concerns. Obviously, Lee is priority one in terms of levelling up funding, which means we're entitled to um, £20 million worth of funding. Uh, but it does look at the minute that Wigan Council's bid for Lee will only be roughly £10-11 million worth. And I do feel that leaving almost half the money on the table is probably um, a bit substandard. I think we should be aiming for as much of that 20 million as possible. Secondly, I mean, there are a couple of concerns about the phasing and delivery of that scheme. I know that, that sort of what we're talking about at the moment is uh, closure of Lee Market for a year while the refurbishment takes place. But the alternative space is only a fifth the size of that. So what you would be looking at, I think, and certainly what the market traders have been saying uh, is that they're very concerned that during the year the market's closed, given there's inadequate space for them to try transfer into during that refurbishment. The danger is that the custom simply goes somewhere else and, uh, and, and you know, we end up with a new building but no market because the, the traders either have moved on or the customers have moved on. And so I think there's, there's more work to be done on on sort of phasing of that project and, and sort of finding a viable alternative to market location whilst the refurbishment takes place, which of course is desperately needed and everyone supports that. Um, in terms of, in terms of you know, with what we would do with the remainder of that money is, the one thing that came up from the existing businesses and potential future businesses in Leeds, at the minute, um, uh, there's a lack of a sort of a big draw, that's something to improve footfall in the town centre to drive businesses to the refurbished high street and the refurbished market, which of course are good ideas and, and ideas that we suggested to Wigan Council as an alternative to their multi-storey car park idea. And I think that is the missing piece of the puzzle at the moment, um, that, that there needed to be a, a large centrepiece project um, uh, to sort of drive footfall in the town centre. Now, you were talking about your relationship with Wigan Council, which I think brings us quite nicely onto the issue of Lexit, which I know is a, a passion of yours. Lee has been part of Wigan Borough since the local government reorganisation in 1974, but you would like to see it separate uh, from the borough uh, of Wigan and form its own authority. And I know you've been in talks with Michael Gove about this and you've had uh, the support of Boris Johnson in Prime Minister's questions, if I remember rightly. Um, mm. Where are things at with it at the moment? Well, as it happens, this very afternoon, uh, before I met you, I had a meeting with Kemi Bardnock, the local government minister, and we had a discussion about this uh, this very issue. Um, so very, very pertinent timing to uh, to ask me this question. I mean, um, uh, the, uh, the Long story short, I mean, the, the uh, local government reorganisation, uh, I think, came into effect in 1973 uh, and the council started operation in 1974. Well, the people of Lee have never felt that Wigan really represents their interests because, of course, um, 
whilst we are neighbouring towns, we're also rival towns, friendly rivals. Um, uh, but nonetheless, you know, we have rival rugby teams. Um, there are two major towns within the conurbation, depending on which metric you use. Some might say Lee is larger than Wigan. Uh, depending on which suburbs you include as part of Lee and Wigan, respectively. Um, but of course, culturally, the Makerfield area, which lies between Wigan and Lee, um, is, is culturally part of Wigan, even if not part of the, 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 the town itself. And so uh, it, it feels like we've always been a minority in the borough. It feels like, um, you know, we, we, we are the second stringers, the second class citizens. And I think there's been a lot of uh, issues recently around We've been talking about town centre regeneration. Wigan Council, of course, has a project where they're, they're spending 200 million on the regeneration of Wigan town centre. And people have rightly said in Lee, well, where's Lee's 200 million? What about us? Surely if we're equals, we'd be getting the same amount of money spent on the regeneration of our town centre. Um, I think it's a fair comment. So, I mean, these have been, uh, these have been questions that have been posed by the public. Um, regarding our future since the very creation of Wigan Borough. Uh, and of course, and of course, at the time, um, there, there were a number of these debates uh, that went on. Uh, famously, Berry um, was initially proposed to be merged with Rochdale. The people of Berry mounted a campaign to stay out of Rochdale. They were successful. Um, there were people in uh, Warrington who, uh, I think Warrington was initially proposed to be part of Greater Manchester. They campaigned to keep themselves out of Greater Manchester successfully. Um, and indeed, not just historic debates on this. Yesterday, my colleague Robbie Moore, MP, uh, Keithley, um, put forward a bill in Parliament. Sorry, it wasn't yesterday, it was Monday, um, regarding local referendums to, uh, to for, for people who wanted to form their own local authority. And, uh, I can tell you now, I, I, I think I'll be supporting that bill wholeheartedly uh, as an alternative mechanism for, uh, for, for getting out of Wingborough. Uh, should, uh, should, uh, sh should, my, um, should my attempts uh, with the department not necessarily bear fruit, but I'm very optimistic they will. And of course, over in Merseyside, Southport is currently, uh, is currently I won't say agitating, the people of Southport are very genteel, nice people. I, I, I don't think they, uh, they necessarily get very agitated about very much, but they are campaigning to get out of Merseyside and back into Lancashire. They have been doing so for some time. And I know Damien Moore, the MP there, is, is very keen to progress that issue. He feels that, that not only uh, Sefton Council, but Merseyside as a whole, doesn't necessarily represent the best interests of Southport, which obviously is on the very outermost edge of Merseyside, and that, um, and that Southport has far more in common with the neighbouring parts of Lancashire in, in uh, South, uh, South Ribble and West Lancs. Um, you know, these are debates that are going on all across the country. Um, and the thing is, if devolution means anything, it means local people being able to take control of the decisions uh, that, uh, that affect their town, sometimes for a couple of years in the future, sometimes for a generation, major, major decisions. Um, and I think the thing is, you know, we're talking about, um, we've seen a lot of regional devolution already. My view has always been that's an incomplete version of devolution, um, uh, where, um, you know, if you're creating mayors with centralised powers, then the boroughs that are beneath those mayors, we perhaps need to reassess those, uh, the purpose of those boroughs. And of course, th there are still savings to be made because you can do things like centralised payroll to defray the cost of, uh, 
of, of reorganisation. Um, and, and we have seen in, um, you know, there are some places where bigger authorities have been formed. And in Cumbria recently, Cumbria County Council was broken up. We've seen two smaller authorities in Cumbria. Um, I think that, that, that um, the, the thing is, what is the best form of local government for your community? Uh, and we do have quite a patchwork across the country, where in some places, my good friend Chris Green, the MP for Bolton West and Allerton, says that virtually all of his constituency has parish councils because it's largely made up, even though its name, its official name is Bolton West, and obviously contains part of Allerton as well, which I have the other half, um, that the entirety of the Bolton West part is not actually the town of Bolton, it's largely places like Horwich and West Horton, um, and, uh, and, and most of that is parished because, uh, because those communities, whilst they feel cultural affinity to Bolton, do want some control over, over local decision-making, um, especially a, a parish and town councils, that tends to be uh, sort of granular things like, um, like the ability to organise local events and um, placement of flower pots and things like that. Um, stuff that, that, that may seem trivial in the grand scheme of things, but are very important to local people in terms of, um, in terms of the ability to shape what their community looks like and, uh, and in terms of community pride as well. Um, I, I think, that, um, I think that, that in terms of, um, sort, of the, the, the sort of the prospects for local government reform, there's a lot of things in the mix at the minute, and it's not just in Lee that things like Lexit are being talked about, because of course we've talked about Rob, Robbie Moore and Keithley and his neighbour Philip Davies and Shipley. We talked about uh, my colleague Damien Moore in Southport. Obviously there's Lexit. There will be other places as well in the country who wish to see um, devolution brought down to the very local level. So we can basically direct the future path of our town in the most effective way, because who, who are the best people to make the decision for the local community, but those local communities. And so you were saying, uh, just talking about Robbie Moore, the legislation that he's brought before Parliament this week. So is what you're saying that if, if your talks with the government don't aren't successful in bringing Lexit about, you might try and use legislation that prompts a referendum to achieve the same the same goal. As I, as I say, I mean, the talks are progressing quite productively um at the moment with the government but um obviously uh any alternative mechanism such as that proposed uh, in robbie moore's legislation is extremely welcome um you know because obviously there are there, there are I, i'll go through the current mechanism actually um which is and it fits very neatly actually uh with with what robbie's proposing with local referendums uh which is um uh that you must demonstrate public support for your proposal, which I think is very easy. I mean, you just need to go around the town centre and speak to ordinary people. And if you ask them, do you want Lee to have its own local authority back? People will say yes. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, the second part of that formula is viability. Uh, now, it's whether or not the, uh, the new authority would be viable as a local authority. Uh, which of course is uh, is, is and uh, and as part of the meeting today, um, the minister will be writing to me outlining the precise meaning of viability, public and public support. And the third factor, obviously, is sign off by the government. Which, if you met the first two, then the third is pretty much a, a given. So, um, so, and I think I think Robbie's proposal um, actually uh, is a great mechanism 
to deliver on part one, uh, which is demonstrating public support. Because obviously at the moment, um, what, is the what is the mechanism to de demonstrate public support? Is it a petition? Uh, is it people writing letters? I think formalizing that part of the mechanism through, through a referendum where people wish to separate from their local authority is, is a good one. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I think in terms of constitutional reform, um, uh, over the past decade, we've seen a number of referendums, famously, of course, the Brexit one. Not only that, uh, there was the one on the Greater Manchester Clean Air Zone charge. Uh, and uh, of course, we had, we had the Scottish independence refer referendum going all the way back to 99, of course, with the referendums on, uh, on whether to set up a Scottish, um, uh, Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly. Um, and I think actually um, they, they, they're a relatively good barometer to, uh, to judge people's opinions. Famously, of course, in Lee, turnout in the Brexit referendum was higher than at any subsequent general election. Which just goes to show that that actually people do care about these issues, uh, and you can get a pretty uh, you can get a pretty decent uh, takeaway of, of what people's opinions are by holding a formal referendum on some of these subjects. Now, the other big issue for you locally, I know, is the Goulburn Link. So that's the thirteen-mile, three billion-pound spur connecting the Crew to Manchester HS2 line to the West Coast Main Line near Goulburn, which is south of Wigan. Now, yourself. And a few other local MPs have been quite outspoken in opposing it because of the impact it would have on your constituencies. And of course, this month, the government decided it was going to scrap the Goldborn link. But you'll have seen, I'm sure, that Vale industry leaders fear that this bit of line was crucial to creating extra capacity on the railways. And they worry that this decision will create a bottleneck for trains and negatively affect passengers and freight going up and down the country. Do, do you accept that this might have been good news for your constituents, scrapping the Goldborn Lane, but there's a risk that it might end up being a bad thing for the railway network as a whole? Mm. Well, I must say, I'm disappointed that the rail industry for, for popping off like this straight away before they've seen uh, the alternatives that the government is looking at. Um, I've, and, 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 and I shall also add that even though I don't have to declare it anymore, I shall declare my interest. As I was, my family was one of the many thousands in uh, Lowton and Goulburn that were affected negatively by the route of the spur. Um, you know, I've been campaigning on this issue for 10 years. But I think going back to our earlier topic, we were talking about Leah's second class citizens versus Wigan. People in Lowton and Goulburn were going absolutely crackers about the Goulburn spur. It absolutely hammered the local area. You know, thousands of houses affected, hundreds of jobs lost at a demolished industrial estate um, and, and colossal environmental damage. Well, Wigan Council backed the Goulburn Spur because it was good for Wigan. Well, well, great for Wigan. But what about us? You know, and it was like the attitude from Wigan Council was, well, you know, you'll just have to suck it up because this is good for the town centre of Wigan. Um, and, 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 and we were just expected to, to sort of eat all the losses while Wigan Town Centre got the benefits. So it's just, it's just another example of how, how Lee and the surrounding communities are treated as second class citizens um, by Wigan Council. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that obviously there are a number of proposals that have come forward as an alternative to the Golden Spur. Um, one of which, which has already received some broad cross-party support from a number of people, which is to upgrade the West Coast Main Line through Warrington. One of the big downsides of uh, the Goldman Spur 
was that it effectively bypassed Warrington. Now, in the long term, this would have meant fewer services running from Warrington down to London, uh, which would have basically turned Warrington into a regional backwater in the fullness of time. So it was colossally opposed on a cross-party basis in Warrington by every party and all MPs of whatever colour. Um, it, it, it was really detrimental to places like Warrington. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, in Trafford as well, around Warburton Village, people opposed it there. Um, I think there were people in, in rural Cheshire opposing it there as well. Um, literally everyone along the route of that track um, opposed it, whatever political stripe you could name, with the exception of Wigan Council, whose attitude was, you know, all get stuff, this is good for us. And, and I, I think it illustrates the kind of uh, the, the kind of attitude that Wigan Council has um, to the point where they they obviously had a, a, an influence on the uh, Labour MP for Makerfield putting forward an amendment on Monday night, which in the end was not moved, um, that attempted to get the Goldman Spur back into the bill in the teeth of opposition from literally everybody else along the route of that spur. Um, I, I think that it's all very well for the Rail Industry Association to volunteer about half a dozen communities along the route of the Goldman Spur for devastation um, for the interests of their industry. But, but, but you know, uh, I suspect those very same people, if the Goldman Spur had been running through their communities in a way that wasn't very effective or, value, or, or indeed value for money, um, as both the Union Connectivity Review and the Integrated Rail Plan said, independent reports that said the Goldman Spur wasn't up to scratch, um, you know, I suspect those people would have been signing petitions and writing angry letters in their communities. Um, I think the Rail Industry Association and others, um, you know, just, just are completely out of touch with ordinary people on this, especially when, as I say, there is this other option on the table, which is to upgrade the West Coast mainline through Warrington, which actually means Wigan loses nothing, Scotland loses nothing, Warrington gains, and it's far less impactful on a real uh, a string of communities that would have been uh, horrendously impacted by the Goldman Spur had it gone ahead. James Grundy, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.